Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, Nikita Singaretti, investor at RRE Ventures, and Nico Skivaski, founder and president at Redox. Nico, Nikita, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. So we're here to talk about uh, healthcare and and some of the newest regulations, but also uh, more broadly on the space. Uh, Nikita, you you recently wrote an article uh, sort of summarizing what's so interesting about the latest new regulations. Mm -hmm. Why don't you unpack what you were trying to do uh, in, in that piece? Yeah, this is something I think a lot about as someone who invests in healthcare and already has a big healthcare portfolio, but there's a tremendous amount of inertia in healthcare. And I think it's more pronounced in healthcare than a number of other spaces. I think the close corollary is probably fintech and financial services, where you have these really large incumbent players. And also, as in addition to that, deeply fragmented on the customer side. Um, so that might look like SMBs for the fintech world um, and just the sheer number of people that are companies that need payment processing. And then in healthcare, it's just the sheer number of provider organizations, vendors and everything in between. So when you want to innovate in healthcare, there needs to be a number of driving factors that really force it to happen. And we've seen it happen a couple of different times in healthcare, but I think really following regulations is an easy way to see this materialize. One good way I think of framing this is if you look at the high tech bill in 2009, which was related to the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, that was one of the first times that the government said you need to adapt and demonstrate meaningful use of EMRs and EHRs. And it's not like the EMR industry didn't exist before that. I mean, Epic was already one of the biggest players in the space, and so was Cerner, but there wasn't that forcing function from the government to have to do that. And it really solidified all healthcare institutions, not just the big health systems, but also that kind of tail end, smaller provider groups had to use EHRs as well. But you see this in, you know, not not just with electronic medical records, you see this happen over and over again with different acts. So some random examples and other ones to mention, the Fairness to, con- to, the Fairness to Contact Lens Consumer Act in 2004. That really created 1-800-CONTACTS and Hubble. The Affordable Care Act, I think, is an obvious one. In 2010, you got the Bright Healths and the Oscars. The Invisalign patent expired, and so you got Candid and you got Smile Direct Club, and then you have these telemedicine reimbursements, and now the CMS interoperability rules and a bunch of other things related to data exchange on the Medicare admission discharge transfer side, as well as social determinants of health and provider directory. And you can very clearly see the time frame in which these products need to be rolled out. So I use that as, let me follow where this train is going. And usually you can see these rules and regulations put out three or four years beforehand. There'll be requests for comments, et cetera. And if you're smart about following those requests. Basically, I think you can do a pretty good job of tracking where the industry is going and investing in those tailwinds, those forced tailwinds. What I think is interesting, if I could just add to that, is healthcare needed the government to push innovation. So before meaningful use, which was, you know, part of the the bailout package and, you know, back in 2008, healthcare organizations weren't on their own adopting electronic health records. Uh, They were kind of cobbling together their own systems and trying to make it work. But 
just because of the broken nature and misaligned incentives within our healthcare ecosystem, there wasn't really an incentive for them to use technology to uh, better themselves and become more efficient on their own. And what we saw was electronic health records really didn't cross the chasm. You know, if you think of the traditional business school crossing the chasm, electronic health records were a highly bespoke, customized piece of software that costs tens of millions of dollars to implement, you know, two years to implement with the health system. And at the end of the day, it didn't really actually, you know, it was unclear if they actually provided efficiency gains for uh, their users. And what the government did in, you know, they had, they had outsized uh, incentives to do so with the, the last recession going on. Um, they put money behind the subsidies to implement uh, these electronic health records for hospitals and for providers. Um, and what that did was it, it actually pulled the technology across the chasm. So to, typically it takes a 10x improvement of technology to, for it to be kind of naturally by market forces pulled across the chasm. But what we saw instead was the government pulled it across. And because of that, I think we got almost premature adoption of technology that wasn't really ready for mainstream yet. For instance, you know, we're talking 2008 here, uh, really went to affect 2009 and, and, you know, the years beyond that. Um, so we're about a decade in and electronic health records, you know, we're implementing things today that were never designed to talk to the cloud um, or, you know, d- designed to, to work with the internet in modern age. So we, in some ways, by the government interfering and in natural progression of technology adoption, we actually saw a technology that wasn't ready to, to be adopted by, by the masses. And I think that puts us into a lot of the position that we're in today with the kind of older school technology, you know, server system sort of technology that's being used by healthcare organizations. Totally. And so is there any sort of forward uh, predicting here in terms of predicting where regulation is going to go and, you know, what precedence that, that might set or what opportunities that might create as a result? And Nikita, as a healthcare investor, can, can you look forward or do you really have to, you know, look back or, or, or look in the present? I think you have to be two to three, even four years ahead, because if you're looking at regulations today, right, there are already companies that have been built in the space and likely companies that already have several rounds of funding. And those companies saw these really intractable problems, seemingly intractable problems and decided, I'm going to go against the grain and build a business here. And it's not like Redox necessarily knew or any of these, you know, any companies that I think are really going to take off with these new rules like ribbon and patient ping, et cetera. It's not like they knew that there was going to be a rule, but there was a general sense, I think, that people knew something had to happen and probably the government was going to be that push in order for there to be more efficiencies being generated in, in healthcare. So you can look back, I think, several years and see and, and, you know, RRE hasn't been the best at this. And I think there's plenty of funds that haven't been the best at this. But I think that that's a guiding force for me. If you look back three years, they were already asking, CMS was already requesting people um, and requesting institutions, give us feedback on how we should be thinking about data exchange. Give us feedback on how we should be thinking about value-based care. Give us feedback on XYZ things. And you can use that as a guide, right? And you're not always going to be, you know, hitting the tail, uh, hit, hitting the nail on exactly what the ruling is going to be. You, you never really have a full idea of that, but you can have a general sense of the space. And I think some people have been ex- exceptionally good at that. Even when you look at companies that started, like I, I, I've read about this, I'm not entirely sure if it's true, but even if it's apocryphal, um, I heard that you know pe- some of the people that went and built the Invisalign related companies, a lot of them were consultants and people that were generally tracking these regulations and had a sense of what patent expirations were going to happen. So because they knew that, 
there was this idea you could build a big business in this space because it was a white space. And I think you can be really ahead of the curve as both a builder and an investor if you put in the work to track these things. Totally. And so where do you think are the biggest disagreements uh, in the space right, right, right now, Nikita, in terms of where, where things might lead or what this could lead to in terms of uh, investment opportunities or in terms of how, how the bill might shake out? That's a good question. I mean, as with all things, I think these regulations can help, but you never know if you're actually backing the right company. You can only back, you know, really great teams and solving really great problems and hope that, you know, you're catching the right whale based on the information that you're going off of. I think that there's a sense that some people are thinking that some of these technologies may be commoditized. Like, I think looking at the telemedicine reimbursement rules are a good sense of that. I think people are are saying some of these larger now, like, you know, let's let's look at a teledoc or a doctor on demand and then every single tele- related telemedicine company that focuses on a specific specialty and all the tools that you might need to run those businesses. Some people are saying, you know, these things, everyone's going to everyone's going to have them and maybe they're actually just going to be available via API. So you don't actually need to be connected to a business to do that. And that would decimate some of these businesses. But, but healthcare moves super slowly. Even if you have a rule change, I'm sure we're going to see people pushing out the deployment of a lot of these technologies. And even if you read the rules closely, they give a lot of wiggle room for exceptions and for you to demonstrate that I need six months longer or 12 months longer for these types of reasons. And if you know anything about CMS, I think they actually give a lot of leeway um, to a lot of organizations. So I'm not sure. I'm I, I, when you say disagreements, I think that that's an interesting, interesting way of phrasing it. Because disagreements to me is just a sense of what's your go-to-market strategy, what's your distribution, what's your product strategy. I think ultimately it comes down to that. Well, I think just to if we could give some context for what's going on in healthcare right now, I think there's a confluence of a couple really big trends that are are happening. Um, the the obvious elephant in the room is that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And what that's done to our healthcare organizations is still yet to be seen Had the long-term effects of that. Um, it's financially decimated many organizations where, you know, they were already running on super slim margins. Now they are running definitely in the red this year, and that might continue for a couple of years. And so their technology buying really went from kind of a differentiating activity to something that is now driven off of necessity. How do we actually continue to provide services that we couldn't provide before uh, via virtual care? Um, via remote patient monitoring or other sort, you know, remote diagnostic services, all these these ways that they need to adapt uh, to in-person care. Because you know, ev- even if you know social distancing works and the swell of new COVID cases goes down, people still want to avoid hospitals because that's where the that's where the pandemic is. Uh, you want to stay away from those, and so there's a, a very real fear that health systems have around how do we actually keep the lights on and working right now. And so their technology adoption has shifted to. Uh, accommodate that. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've alluded to it a few times, but there's these new data sharing rules that I think really opens up the landscape for new technologies to exist that didn't exist in the past. Um, and, you know, Nikita just wrote that great article on it. So maybe you want to walk through kind of some of the, like what, what has changed in the landscape uh, based on these, these new rules that were, I guess, the, the latest version announced in March. Nico, totally. I think when you look at hospital margins, right, they went from not great to begin with, 8% to 2% less than that in in COVID times. And the spend that was there was always relatively small, but it's shrunk. And now I feel from my conversations I've had with health system leaders, 
there are things that they were maybe thinking about spending money on where they will not be thinking about spending money on that until 2024 at best. And then other areas that are top of funnel revenue expanding where they're thinking about how do I actually have efficiencies in my call centers and the front desk so I can have more time actually being spent on care and less money spent on those kind of front desk resources. Um, how do I expand and get more potential patients into the funnel? How do I actually think about building a proper healthcare CRM that hasn't really existed meaningfully for a lot of these, um, a lot of these health provider practices or health systems? And as you were saying, with remote patient monitoring, it's the same thing. And it's an expansion, a net new revenue opportunity. Alexi uh, of Nomad Health has said before, and I think about this quote all the time, it relates to a lot of businesses, but particularly in healthcare. In healthcare, you can't really offer people savings. Like savings doesn't mean much. What does mean a lot is, can you actually show me that my revenue is going to be expanded um, versus savings? Totally. And maybe zoom out just a little bit. Nico, why don't you give more uh, context on what Redux does and why it's, uh, it's relevant to the conversation we're having here? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I cut my teeth in healthcare working at Epic, the one of the large electronic health records. So I, I ended up leaving Epic and kind of jumped out into the healthcare entrepreneurial ecosystem. And I just assumed that there would be a lot of activity in Madison, uh, where Epic is located, because the same year I left Epic, there were 1,200 other people who left Epic, you know, with your typical 10% of people leaving the company every year. So I looked around the health the healthcare technology ecosystem and really saw consultants and not many people actually creating companies. And so that drove a lot of the motivation behind Redox because we started looking at, well, why aren't there more healthcare technology companies and why aren't the ones that are out there actually getting to market and getting in the hands of users? One of the biggest barriers that we saw was that in order for you to actually take your product to market, a healthcare technology startup has to go through like two years of a sales cycle. They have to you know, convince 100 people at, that, at a healthcare organization to say yes. And if any one of those people says no, then the deal is done. And so that huge gauntlet was was a, a massive barrier to entry for new technology and for innovative technology that should exist in the in the healthcare space because you know we still literally have pagers and fax machines and clipboards use at use in healthcare and it's like the only place I've ever seen uh, a pager being used in my adult lifetime. So one of the biggest barriers to entry for these technologies is is getting through IT and the challenges of interoperability with the existing technologies, you know, electronic health records at those organizations. And so this is this is kind of, you know, a lot of the context around why this new regulation, this new interoperability rule makes sense as well. But this was, you know, six years ago now, and we saw this problem, we saw the writing on the wall. And so we started a company, a middle layer to actually pull data out of health systems to standardize it in the cloud, make it available over a consistent API, and uh, give that to software developers who are building applications for these organizations. Um, so that's, that's what the company does. That's what we started. The first couple of years of that, I, you know, we didn't make much money because we were trying to figure out the chicken or egg problem. And so as Nikita mentioned, um, one of my side hustles was a, a book that I created called ICD-10 Illustrated. And I crowdsourced um, artists to create um, to create art, artworks based on ICD-10 codes, which are um, billing codes that doctors have to send to insurance companies to tell them you know, how people get injured. So if you imagine the 120,000 ways people couldn't get injured and the different codes associated with that, there were a lot of funny ones. And so we got artists to kind of pick the funniest ones like burn due to water skis on fire or sucked into jet engine. Um, I guess that's, that's not that funny, but it's, you know, it, it creates good illustrations. And so we made a book and I ended up selling like 10,000 copies of that book as the, as the country was moving from 
ICD version nine to version 10. And that's, that's kind of how I kept afloat while we were in the early startup days of Redox. Let's pretend us three were starting a, a venture fund focus exclusively on, 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 on healthcare. Before sort of getting into sort of specific sub, sub verticals and saying what, what we think about it, Nikita, what do you think is the mistake that most VCs or misconception that most VCs have on on the category, whether they're specialists or whether they're generalists trying to trying to weigh in? What do you think they don't either see clearly or don't appreciate as as much as they should? Healthcare is one of these industries where you have to have a rolodex, and even having a rolodex, the whole you know doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be successful. Most of the people that we like to back at RRE, and I think folks that have generally had success in healthcare, and again, not it doesn't mean that you're going to have success, but I think it's a very important piece of it is you've worked in healthcare before. People in healthcare tend to trust other people who've worked in healthcare. If you're an upstart that someone who's never really been in healthcare before, it's just that much harder, particularly when you think about who you're selling to. It's less of an issue if you're selling direct to consumer, I think, but if you have anything that will start touching clinical trials, payers, and health plans, pharmaceutical companies, like anything, you have to really have folks on your team that have done that before so that you know how to sell into and have access to these types of high-paying customers. So sometimes I think that can be a little bit overlooked because even when you go and listen to some of the biggest success stories, like let's say take one medical, for example, or even Glenn at Lavongo, these folks had a tremendous amount of healthcare background. And even for them, it was not just a cakewalk for this company, for the companies to be successful. And then if you take these kinds of two outlier founders and founding and, and companies, and then look at everybody else who's tried to build a healthcare company that has a healthcare background, and then you look at the folks who tried to build a healthcare company and have no healthcare background, to me, the success, one of the most successful variables is that kind of having that material healthcare background and having folks on your team that, that have the background. What you just said makes me pretty sad because what that means is, <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's like the status quo. We, we, we're depending on the status quo to fix an industry that desperately needs disruption. I but I think it's true. You know, I like <laughs> I, I, I'm a hypocrite here in that I came from Epic. Like I came from that world of understanding how healthcare technology works. And that's how we were able to kind of solve that chicken or egg problem and, and get through it. But you know, I'm, I'm not an investor, so I'm not putting my money where my mouth is. But a lot of the companies that I see that get investment that I kind of roll my eyes at are that it's, it's really easy to have a huge vision in healthcare of about the way the world should work. Because as an entrepreneur, you can see a million different ways that healthcare should use technology to be better. And so it's it, as a founder, you can paint this vision and say like, this is, this is how our tech should work. And this is how the, the world should uh, conform around this vision. And the execution of that vision is a whole nother story. And, and I see a lot of companies with a very big vision and they can't get past one or two customers. There's a lot of health, healthcare technology companies that have like one or two or three or four or five customers, but there's not a lot that have 20 or 30 or 50. Um, and there's a big, there's a big gap between those that do and, and don't. Um, and it's often that the ones that succeed have a way, you know, a foot in the door. They have uh, whether that's that's connections like Nikita was talking about. Um, but but more often, I think it's a, a very specific value proposition that has mm -hmm. a buyer that can say yes to that. Um, that isn't too expensive that they don't have to you know wait for the next budget cycle to figure out how to pay for. And they can start small and then kind of grow from there. Um, and I think that those focused companies, we've seen them grow a lot faster 
and you know, it's, it's hard to do the whole land and expand thing in healthcare where it's like, okay, we're starting in diabetes and now we're expanding to, um, congestive heart failure and not, you know, all the other places where there's a lot of good to be had. Um, but I think starting focused, uh, is, is where we've seen a lot more companies be successful. And Nico, something that you said in, in, in that as well was you understood the challenge working at Epic. You deeply understood what the problems of data exchange mm-hmm. were and what was going on. What was the issue with EHRs as they were, as Epic built them, but also as competitors, the Cerners, the Athenas, the et cetera, of the world. Yeah, Nico, one of the things you also just said was around deeply understanding the challenges of data exchange and interoperability as they relate to EMRs because you worked at Epic and because you had an understanding of this is what the competitors look like for Cerner, Athena, as well as all these like tail end EMRs, like WebPT for physical therapy, et cetera. That is the same thing in healthcare and building a great healthcare company. As you were saying, you don't properly have a sense of the real challenges and why this thing doesn't work. If you haven't seen in a very intimate way, this is how that aspect of healthcare, this is what it actually looks like. This is what it looks like if you're a social worker thinking about social determinants of health, you know, so some social determinants of health company, or if you haven't worked in IT, you don't have a sense of these are what um, middleware companies may look like or how you actually work with vendors. Um, the same thing, anyone that's trying to sell into a payer or a health plan having sat on the other side of that for myself at Oscar and in in the intimacies of insurance operations um, and how it works and how internally within the company things get done and what we're prioritizing and not prioritizing. It is the same for any industry. I don't want, you know, to over, to overstate that healthcare is super special in that way, but there is something quite unique to the way healthcare is still operating. Like it's the early two thousands. Totally. Well, let me start. There, there's some big firms who've chosen not to get get into healthcare uh, because maybe they just don't think it can have the type of big outcomes that big firms need. What do you see differently about the potential to be sort of, you know, decacorn plus potential in healthcare companies that maybe some of these other firms are are missing, and maybe that's why they don't they don't enter them as often? Mm-hmm. Did you say deck of corn? What what is that? Yeah, <laughs> ten billion plus. Oh. <laughs> investor lingo. Nico, don't worry. We'll bring it up at the we'll, we'll bring it up at the next board meeting. Great, great. Um, <laughs> um I think that there is obviously a not even obviously. There is a list of ideal buyers for any kind of healthcare company or any kind of company, right? That you're trying trying to sell your product into. And I think that there are certain spaces in healthcare that are just much much harder than the others because of fragmentation um, or because of over-concentration. I think two easy binaries of this is trying to sell into provider groups of which there are tens of thousands and then trying to sell into an insurance company uh, of which there aren't really that many. I mean, most people know the big five health insurance companies. And so when you're thinking of how to sell, it's going to be a challenge if you're going through something that's super, super fragmented or an area that's really, really concentrated on the buyer side. So when it comes to thinking about investing in a healthcare company, you want to maximize for both a maximize efficiency and maximize speed and success, right? So when I think about, you know, why we 
um, invested in a company like Redox, I think that that really were maximizing the amounts of sellers and like this kind of the intention of what a middleware could do to bring in a lot of people into an ecosystem makes it a much easier, I think, sell than something that's you're trying to sell to every single tens of thousands of provider groups. It's just more of a challenge. So I think that that can be something that can be really hard for the average investor, particularly if you don't have a background in healthcare to get over. Also, healthcare is really confusing. I, I, I don't think I really knew what an, a copay or a deductible was before I worked at Oscar. And thank God it never came up in an interview because I probably would not have been able to answer that question. And that's the average person. And then, you know, investors are, uh, I'm not trying to say that they're not average or whatever, but it doesn't, you're not ever going to be an expert on every space. And I think that there are some spaces where it really requires you to be much more of an expert so you can get to the meat of the business. So I think, I think healthcare is, is one of those spaces. If, if I could add, and maybe, maybe this is too elementary, but if you look at healthcare in the industry at large, it's so inefficient and we spend so much money on it, you know, nearing 20% of GDP that something mm-hmm. has to give. Like at, at what point, and, and, and that number has been climbing, right? Every, every year it climbs up a little bit more. Like at what point does that totally cripple our economy? Is it 25%? Is it 40%? Like w- where does it break? And if, if you just look at that and say, you know, something's got to give here. Um, and, and then also like cons- the consumer experience in healthcare is terrible. Like as a patient, we know that it, there should be so much opportunity for improvement. And there are huge incumbents and the status quo is strong and there's a very complex system. So it's it's held off for so long, but something has got to give. And maybe what we're seeing right now, because you know I've been saying this same thing for for years, but maybe what we're seeing right now with the pandemic is it giving because we've taken this this old crappy car and now we've floored it with with this pandemic and the the wheels are falling off and we need we need to replace it in a lot of ways. And so I'm really optimistic about new new types of healthcare delivery models to start to take hold, um, especially as patients are. Um, now open to to seeing seeing doctors in different ways. They're not you know gonna do the same old like drive across town, wait in a waiting room, and and see a doctor for three minutes um, just to you know go over a blood test, right? Like there's so much opportunity to change that, and um, that's why I'm like extremely excited about where healthcare is going and, and why as an investor, I, w- I would be looking at what are the ways that that's going to unfold. And so that's at a really high level, obviously, but I, j- I just think there's, there's gotta be something there and there's gotta be, um, wh- what did you call it? De- stacks of corn? I, I, I forgot already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's gotta be those opportunities here. Yeah, I totally agree. And to talk about the consumer aspect, I think that's something I've been thinking a lot about because some of the players I mentioned earlier, they have deep pockets consumer, the average consumer, the average patient does not. And we know for that insurance, even if you have good, quote unquote, good insurance, doesn't work that well. And you can still get slammed with a bill that'll put you in some serious medical debt. Uh, If you look at some studies, I think Instamed, which is owned by JP Morgan, it's a payments company focused on healthcare. They put out this really interesting stat that even in like 2007, patients slash consumers were only paying for about 8% overall of their healthcare bills. Now it's up to 33, 33%. Isn't that crazy of a space where if you already have insurance or even people that don't have insurance, that's a lot. That's a high percentage and a lot of money to be spending. And so when I think about investing companies in, in healthcare, and I think there's this real, this big, big seduction around um, consumer digital health businesses. And that's why when you look at a lot of the best healthcare companies, they have multiple revenue streams and multiple types of buyers. Even a digital health company, oftentimes they'll be working with 
medical device companies. They'll be working with pharmaceutical companies as alternative streams of revenue, even some of these diagnostic companies that send, you know, testing sticks to your home. They're also looking at alternative revenue streams. You never want to be too focused, right, in one area just in case it dries up. And in healthcare, I think there's a very good reason to be working with lots of different types of players. I never want the consumer who's already so buckled under a tremendous amount of financial pressures in many, many different directions to be spending even more than they should be in healthcare. I think that that consumerism point is a is a really good trend to touch on. You know, fundamentally in the healthcare market, the one of the things that's really broken is consumers don't have a direct demand for healthcare. Like, you know, you have a demand for any other sort of consumer products. Um, in healthcare, we have a drive demand in that we want to be healthy and we hope that buying healthcare will make us healthy. And because we don't have an understanding of how healthcare can provide health, we depend on experts to help facilitate that. And that's your doctors and healthcare systems and payers who are telling you to, you know, get your annual checkup and all that sort of stuff. And so that is a fundamental market failure that prevents healthcare from operating like most markets where a consumer can just, you know, pay the 100% of, of the fee and actually rationally uh, save and, and act as a consumer on their own. But what that means is that technology has an amazing role to play in fixing that market. So, so yeah, you, you could argue that the market should be replaced. Um, and this is what a lot of, you know, industrial countries have done is instead of, instead of fixing their healthcare markets, they replaced it by a, a government, uh, run program that pays for everything. Um, and, you know, has, has guidelines around what people should do from a behavior standpoint. But you could also look at the opportunity to fix the market by providing more transparency into that production function. How does, how does healthcare translate into health? And that's where things like AI um, should have huge potential. Um, that's where, where, you know, all the consumer heuristics and, um, you know, technologies uh, that come from the consumer space as they move into healthcare, I'm hoping that they are able to engage patients in figuring out how does that, their actual behavior change their um, long-term health. And as, as Nikita mentioned, um, as consumers pay a bigger and bigger portion of their healthcare, they actually have an aligned incentive to close that information gap and figure out, you know, um, if, if I go and get an MRI down the street instead of at the academic medical center, is that going to be way cheaper? And, you know, aligning those incentives uh, around uh, things that can actually drive costs down, uh, I think is, 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 you know, hopefully the, the American way to save our healthcare system. Otherwise, I think we will have to replace it because the government run systems are, are much more efficient in every regard as far as cost goes. Um, you know, there's, there's other, other problems here and there, but um, from a cost perspective, you know, the United States is off the chart. I don't want to get political or anything, so we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. I'm not going to go down that route. (laughs) 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 Or we could be on, we could, this would end up being like a two to three hour podcast. Um, (laughs) But I did like, you know, some of the things you were mentioning about shopability and another just aspect of how I've been thinking about um, healthcare as an investor, you can bring some easy tooling that has existed in other areas and just bring it to healthcare. And it's not that revolutionary, but it could be huge kind of interesting, right? Like, why is there no, you know, make make things HIPAA compliant? Let's just, you know, construct that around everything I'm saying, um, lest the CMS gods come down on me. Why is there no Slack for healthcare? Why is there no Trello for healthcare? Why is there no, you know, like Amazon really for certain types of me- durable medical equipment? I think we're now seeing companies in that space, but it's pretty crazy to me that you could take these existing business models, jigger them a little bit and bring them to healthcare. And I think that they would actually see a tremendous amount of success. This goes to, I think, the challenge that Nico also brought up where he said, 
we want to see, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of people that do successful, that are successful when they start a healthcare startup are people who've been in the business for a long time, but it doesn't always have to be true. Like I think that there are people who've built these other kinds of companies that have worked as developer productivity tools or just business applications that any business has and just bring that to healthcare and take a mindset of empathy for all the people that are in the healthcare system, whether it's the patient and their family, it's a caregiver, it's a provider, it's someone in insurance operations, it's someone who's just on the phone. I think if you can do that, you can also unlock some really phenomenal billion dollar opportunities. And it doesn't have to be something that is the biggest uphill battle in the world because some of the constructs of the success of a business like this has existed in other places. Do you want to go off of, I think it'd be interesting to see from your perspective, you probably, you know, Redox obviously has had a sense of this is what the rules were aiming for, but you didn't know what they were going to be until recently. Yeah. So, I mean, I've had a sense of this kind of over changes, but I'm curious, uh, and you don't have to obviously go into the internal machinations of the Redox business, but <laughs> As you were figuring out, okay, this is what we're building this business, having a general sense of what not what the industry wants, but also like where we think that the regulations are going to end up. This is where the regulations are now. And where does Redox fit in relative to that? Yeah, yeah. So so right right now, current state in healthcare, uh, data is, is exchanged a ton every day. So data goes from software providers to the healthcare organizations and their electronic health records uh, for providers to, to look at. Um, and, you know, if, if you see a, a telehealth visit, data goes from the doctor you're seeing on telehealth to the pharmacy. Um, and it goes through all these, these backend networks. And they happen through, through, through agreements that are kind of, you know, done behind closed doors. And lar- largely, these are called business associate agreements where um, two parties will say, hey, we are now business associates and taking care of this patient. And therefore, we can share data with each other. The kind of the foundation of the new interoperability paradigm is that we are giving the right, the right for that data to move based on where the patient wants it to move. So the patient is, has become the, the forefront of the foundation of of these new rules. And what that means is that instead of, instead of data flowing between your doctor and your scheduling system that you can access on your phone as a patient to, you know, schedule your next appointment, in, in, instead of that happening behind closed doors, we want that all to come to the forefront. And, you know, it's, it's almost kind of like a GDPR-esque move in that patients will have the right to see where their data goes, have the right to stop it, um, and, and all, all of that sort of stuff. And, and it's, 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 this groundwork is being laid, this infrastructure is being put out so that we can encourage more innovation to happen with healthcare data. Um, and and w- what I mean by that is that if a patient can say, I want my data g- to go to any application they want, then hopefully applications will exist that will will serve, you know, any sort of niche patient need that might be out there um, from, you know, the perfectly healthy young invincibles, like those of us on the call right now, like what sort of apps would we want with our health health data versus the person who's dealing with, you know, uh, end of life palliative care, like what sort of apps would they want um, built on top of their healthcare data? And the, the bet that the government is taking is saying that if we mandate that this infrastructure exists, that, you know, we mandate a single API that healthcare providers and health IT companies have to contribute to in the exact same way, then this ecosystem of patient facing applications should exist. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, the foundation of, of the, a lot of the new uh, interoperability regulations. There's, there's a whole bunch of, of details around that, but that's at the center of it. And I think that's what's, what's fundamentally different here is that we're putting the power in patients' hands to hopefully 
drive a, a consumer like revolution around healthcare technology. I thought that was a good summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, of the, one of the things that I... <laughs> I'll leave now. <laughs> um, the, the, the thing I find really interesting about this, you know, so coming from the, the EHR world, um, electronic health records, there, there's almost this, this sense of net neutrality that comes along with the spirit of the regulation uh, in that... So at first, electronic health records, they are the application that doctors use. So when, when a doc is sitting there typing into the computer with his back turned to you instead of you know, paying attention to you in the exam, they're typing into an electronic health record. Um, so they are the application layer. But the government mandated those, those EHRs to be in place. And therefore, they've become the application layer, but they've also become the, the data source of truth for any healthcare organization. If you go to a healthcare organization and you ask them about their patients, like they're looking in their electronic health rec- record system um, as their database for all of these patients. And what a lot of the, especially the um, information blocking rules state is that we actually have to have a separation between the application layer and the database layer. And what that means is that an electronic health record system, an EHR, cannot discriminate against the type of applications that can be built on top of their database. And, and so that really calls for a decoupling of those two things. And it's difficult because, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of an electronic health record vendor, you know, you, you kind of earned that position. And, and I know, you know, like a lot of investors think about platforms, they earned the position to be the platform that has all the data, the source of truth, you know, like, like Salesforce, for instance, they, because of their market share they earned the ability to have a marketplace on top of Salesforce with all sorts of applications. What the government is saying to electronic health records is, yeah, you earned that, but we also kind of gave it to you through subsidies. Um, And therefore, now that you're in place, now that you have this unique position as controlling the pipes to the data, you have to make those pipes, have them open neutrally to any technology provider that's out there. You know, much like, much like Comcast running a cable line to your house can't control, you know, what you can, what, what shows come in clear, how fast your internet is for certain pages based on their own interests. It has to be a very neutral perspective and, and treat, you know, everyone fairly built on top of that infrastructure. And so uh, that's a really interesting position and, you know, um, and, and a very controversial position that the government took, but, but really kind of going on the basis of, of that net neutrality presumption. I really like that framing. I hadn't even fully conceptualized it that way. But it's really spot on and it does still allow for, you know, multiple sides that are interacting and using and leveraging this API network to also still have some kind of decision making about not just the kinds of information that they're giving, but there's still rules around. You're still given some independence to make certain decisions about it. For example, you are allowed to charge fees. It does have to be uniform. But you can do that um, in certain ways, at least the way that I read through the regulations. There's also ways you can limit the amount of content that's given. There is a floor, so basics that you have to provide. But if they're pulling or requesting other additional types of information, you don't have to provide it as the entity. So I still think that it's trying to give some freedom and independence to and, and, and some kind of sovereignty right, to these organizations. But in the same way that you pay for cable, the cable's not free. You still have to do that, but they're giving more uniform accessibility as Nico really eloquently put it. And Nico, I now want to go back into my Substack post and put your quote in there about net neutrality. Cause I thought it was spot on. 
Well, I have to give credit where credit's due. That that came from a description that Anish Chopra, who was the first CTO of the United States under ah. Obama, um, how how he described it because he he was instrumental during the actual net neutrality mm-hmm. debate, and he's like, this is the same thing. It's you know these organizations because of cable companies, it's it's a natural monopoly in that it doesn't make sense for yes. every cable company to have a cable line you know going to every neighborhood, and same with EHRs like. When an EHR is implemented a health system, they're not going to take it out for 10 years. Like that, that's how long it's going to be there. Just because of the organizational inertia and sunk costs that went into that investment, like they're just not going to turn around and replace it. And therefore, that unique position of having a super sticky platform at these organizations gives it a unique market position where they can have anti-competitive behavior. And that's the basis for this regulation saying, you know, we need to level the playing field to make it neutral. There's a fuzzy line, though, I think, between like what is EHR functionality versus what is like digital health functionality, because, you know, is is a scheduling system, you know, that's traditionally part of a practice management system. Is that part of an EHR or does the EHR have to let any scheduling system be built on top of their records and have a really open market for a provider or a hospital to you know choose whatever scheduling system they want most based on their unique needs? Um, and and that's I, I think that's a, an interesting play here is that 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 line in the sand was not defined by the regulations saying, you know, which digital technologies are are fair game and which ones aren't. And, and maybe, maybe it's just all fair game. But if you think about it as an electronic health record company, they have all sorts of modules. They have population health modules. They have telehealth modules. They have, you know, every specialty, dermatology, radiology, the list goes on and on. They have modules for those things. And a lot of the selling point for electronic health record systems is that all those modules work seamlessly together. And now the government is saying, well, heck, now you have to open it up for any, any, you know, dermatology application to be, to to work seamlessly with, with your underlying database system. And it really opens up the market for competition to more easily enter. Hopefully that's the, that's the spirit of the regulations that have been put in place. Um, We're starting to see the, the beginnings of how EHR vendors are implementing this. But, uh, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of the deadlines have been pushed back. Um, so we're still, you know, a couple of years out from it, but I think that's where a lot of the bets investors are making right now are, is, you know, first the infrastructure that will enable this to happen. So companies like Redox, um, but then secondly, if this infrastructure actually exists and is usable, there's going to be so many more companies out there that can take advantage of it and get to market faster and, um, you know, hopefully change, change the way that healthcare is delivered to become way more efficient, way more consumer oriented, um, and, you know, just a better experience overall. And that's what. I think the exciting thing about being in healthcare in this moment is I have not felt this excited about healthcare in a long time because there were rules like, you know, there, I guess the better way of putting it is lack of rules around this that really stymied a lot of innovation and just the ability to take something from zero to one because you couldn't even do something as basic as um, integrating with Epic unless you're using Redox or, you know, something like that without it being a actual meaningful, like you had to make that a part of your business. And right now, if you look at most you know companies that exist in the API world that are not related to Redox, that aren't a click or, or a data exchange platform, they aren't a core competency of a business. It's one of those things where you don't actually want to spend time doing this because it takes away from your you know time spent on your core value proposition. And now that you have this opening up and hopefully, as um, Nico said, meaningful competition being enabled by these technologies that have to exist for everyone, 
we're going to see a heck of a lot of you know companies just be built. And that kind of manifestation in healthcare, they haven't seen that for, for a long time. And people now, I think, believe that they can build a company and that's no longer a huge challenge. Yeah, we, we see it really as the sort of continual abstraction of, of technical issues, you know, much like back in the 90s, if you wanted to build a website, not that I was building websites in the 90s, but if you did, you'd have to like literally have a server, you know, under your desk running and that's where your, your website was, right? And then we saw um, AWS and other cloud providers come about and, and really open it up and lower barriers to entry for new technologies. Um, and nowadays, you know, you don't even need to know HTML to build a website. It's, it's all been abstracted away and made so much easier. And therefore, you know, you can stand up an e-commerce site on Shopify in 10 minutes. And I think that's the direction that we're hopefully heading in healthcare technology in that, you know, five years ago, if you wanted to start a health tech company, you probably had to have a hundred people on your team just to like make yourself HIPAA compliant, to handle all the infrastructure requirements of integration, to have a, a, you know, a huge enterprise sales team to go and knock on the doors of health systems. And like, that's, that's just to have a company and get your, you know, get your product to market. Um, hopefully in the future, it can be much more like other startups where it could be like two or three people building it out. And um, all, all of that complexity should be abstracted away. So you, you, you've spent some time, uh, you know, a bunch of time in the EHR space. That space hasn't sort of gone as well as many investors have, have thought it would. What, what can you sort of give a little bit of historical overview for why that's been the case if you accept that that premise and, and what are the learnings from sort of the last decade of, or, or more of VCs investing in you know, EMR or EHR startups? Yeah, certainly. And, and I think this touches on what I, what I mentioned earlier about the government mandate. So, so yeah, the government created a market for EHRs, but what they did, it was, it was very heavy handed in um, all of the requirements that an EHR had to meet in order to actually uh, satisfy that mandate and and for their customers to receive subsidies for it. So that was the meaningful use requirements. And electronic health records, essentially, I, I think, you know, from 2008 to, to now, they really lost their innovation muscle. And, you know, they took they took 80% of their product and R&D resources and turned them towards meeting regulatory requirements instead of what most tech companies should be doing, which is listening to their customers, innovating, iterating, all that sort of stuff that kind of went away because everyone was focused on how do you actually meet the requirements provided by the government. And, and, and that was the last decade of EHRs. And so, yeah, it did make some, some kings in the, in the space. And, you know, we went from um, not that much EHR adoption to like 98% of the market is using an EHR now. So, so the government, I think with, with those regulations kind of put EHRs in a tough spot to, to meet the needs of their customers, which is why you can't find a doctor who likes their EHR today. They all, you know, speak terribly of them. Um, and they call it, you know, like Epic is the best of the worst. So, so I think that was a, that was a, a tough spot to be in. And nowadays, because of the regular regulation that's surrounding electronic health records, you definitely don't want to start a new EHR company. Like, I don't think you can, you can start like d- disrupt Epic and Cerner. Like you don't want to start that business because it, it, it would take it would take years to meet the regulatory requirements. And then because of how sticky they are, once they're implemented, health systems aren't going to turn over and buy a new one. So I think the new approach is going to be that EHRs over time will be kind of relegated into the database. And they're going to compete on the on the application layer, of course, but they're going to compete with a whole market of people building apps, assuming that the database is the EHR. And hopefully there's a middle layer in between that can connect them. Um, and that's, you know, this government mandated fire based middle layer. That's, that's kind of how, how I'm thinking about the technology market. But, you know, you, you, do, you don't see startup EHRs. 
Um, I think Dr. Chrono was probably like the last one that that came and made a splash, but they're really selling to the to the the edges of the market to you know private practices and, and small practices and specialties that um, didn't need to adopt EHRs to begin with. Yeah, I think Nico's right about that. I don't want to say I don't want to see any new EHR business being built um, because I'd like to. I think that, uh, or sorry, I'd like there to be some. But you're right. Trying to unseat Epic, Cerner, some of these companies that have 50% pl- to collectively, 50 to 60% of the market is really hard. And just from the, I mean, you would be shocked how big, like, hundreds of millions of dollars these longer health system contracts are with EMR companies. It's insane. And when you think about, as Nico was saying, just the sheer amount of time that it takes to train thousands of people that work in an organization to know how to use an EHR, it's going to be a really hard sell for a larger health system. But I think that there's opportunity, and I think this is why Dr. Crono went after this kind of tail end, for really specialty EMRs, we see this in, um, I think, the dental world. Like, there's a company called Dendrite um, that has a substantial amount of the dentist DMR market. You have WebPT that has a lot of the physical therapy market. I do think that there's opportunity still there because it's much easier to sell to a small provider group, um, particularly certain specialties. Like, they really stick together. Like, the physical therapist world, <laughs> they're just buddies with each other. And it's, from what I've heard, a much easier sell to it kind of specialty group like that. So I think that there is maybe opportunity there, but I would like it, as Nico said, to get relegated to more of a kind of a deeper technical stack so that you can see more applications. I want to see a marketplace for healthcare the same way you have the Slack marketplace, the same way you have the AWS marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's when you know that healthcare is in a really good place where there's actual competition and where the best kinds of products are winning because they answer the needs of payers and providers and patients. Totally. Uh, Nikita, anything else you want to leave us with in terms of where you're excited to be investing in healthcare more broadly that we haven't yet discussed or, or fully touched upon? Yeah, I think, you know, what I was alluding to before, I think taking just business applications that exist outside of healthcare, jigger, you know, rejiggering them for the healthcare world and applying it. I would love to see an actual Google for healthcare. I would love to see a YouTube for healthcare that surgeons and healthcare providers can use. I'd love to see a Trello for healthcare, a Slack for healthcare, you name it. I think a lot of these things can be applied to the healthcare world and I haven't seen too many of them, but there's certainly an opportunity there. Another thing I'd like to see is a really great UI path for healthcare, you know, an RPA tool. We're seeing a couple of companies in the space, not nearly as many as I would like to see for the number of use cases that exist. Um, and I think that, you know, moving on to another kind of area to look at, of course, home health is huge and only becoming huger as we see the fragility of hospitals. And a lot of them are looking to more outpatient-like home health opportunities because it is, again, another expansion of revenue while allowing the hospital to be cleared up and taking more patients there. So there's a whole bunch of companies that I think could be built in the home health space. Like Honor is an example of something that's on the caregiver side. What if we, what if we actually apply the honor model to many different areas of healthcare. I think that would be really interesting. Ones that have a lot of um, clinical 
um, and caregiving staff, but are not necessarily related to seniors. You can see this in the disability space. There's a whole host of you know, clinicians and providers and just caregivers for um, patients like that and for their families. So I think that could be an interesting angle that we've been thinking about. I think another area is looking into certain interesting aspects of Medicare and seeing how we could build a business around this niche thing. So there's an example in the Medicare world called PACE. Um, PACE stands for Programs of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. And it's really a catch-all, but what it's focusing on is how do you actually bring a whole host of community needs into providing Medicare? And there aren't that many companies being built in this space. There's like Commonwealth, um, which is a health plan. And I think that there's another company out in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, that's building this. But I really haven't seen, just given how many dollars, like billions of dollars that are focused on PACE, I just haven't seen too many you know, com- companies that do that. And I, you know, was speaking to um, a friend at Flair that's also thinking about this space. And I, and I think that they're, they're spot on about this. Di- end-to-end digital health is another thing I've been thinking about. Um, I think you can, it, it's great to draw on a lot of different tools. So this has nothing to do with tools, but more to do with digital health is mostly seen as an add-on, right? Like there's an aspect of the digital health side. And then as you need it, you can go in and, visit a provider in person, et cetera. But there is this concept, I think, of there could be just an end-to-end digital, digital health companies for certain areas. And I'd like to see you know, a couple of more companies thinking about it that way. And I think another interesting one I've been thinking about beyond just healthcare payments, which I think is still huge. There are a number of companies being built here. I think you know, Papaya Pay is an interesting one. There is no real fraud and risk analytics company that focused on healthcare. And I think you could take really interesting fraud and risk models from other industries. Like, let's say you've worked in the payment space. If you're an, a company like Stripe, if you're a company like PayPal, you are an expert in detecting fraud and risk on the KYC, AML, et cetera level. I think a lot of those similar concepts apply to healthcare and to claims data. And I would love to see a great company being built in that space. So those are just some of the things I've been thinking about. But if you're building in the healthcare space, I would love to have a conversation with you. I take you know as many conversations as I can with folks in healthcare um, from every you know, every single kind of actor, um, whether you're someone who's a patient or you're someone who's worked in the payer world or you've worked in a provider organization or a vendor or, or, or startup. Um, I think the more that we can share knowledge and information with each other, the better and maybe build some great companies out of it. One of the things I'm focusing on right now, um, I'm, I'm writing a piece on how, and it's inspired by Lenny, who has this um, whole series for how consumer and B2B companies got their first um, customers. I'm trying to do the same thing in healthcare. And I got some time with some really, really great and known founders and co-founders in the healthcare world. But that's another thing that I've been thinking about deeply is like, how can we democratize a lot of these acquisition strategies beyond some of the things that Nico and I talked about, which is like almost the curse of the Rolodex, right? Like, can we actually make it so you can beyond the technology side, which hopefully companies like Redox and Data Exchange are going to help enable. But can we give these multitudinous acquisition strategies to a bigger group of people so we hopefully see more healthcare companies down the line? I, I love that. Are there any early learnings from, from the research so far? Or are you, are you... I mean, I will say that people have such creative story. Like just, I mean, it's not like they intended the stories to be creative, but 
Building any company is hard. Imagine building healthcare companies and just the many, many different directions um, that some of these companies built in. Like, for example, some of these companies at the beginning when they were just a project even, were not HIPAA compliant, but some, you know, someone was using them um, to figure it out uh, and to see if this is something that we should actually build and turn into a real business. Um, companies that you would not expect to be um, ha- you know, having a large line of business that let's say it's a consumer health company to have a large line of business in, you know, the life sciences world, their company is doing that. And it's actually like more core in some of their first customers versus consumer, which you may have expected, or just stories about companies that started off a certain way and they had an anchor customer that was pulling them in all the wrong directions. Right. And they had to, adapt, had to adapt and, and change it's like, it's going to be a really good post. I am excited. I've heard some like really crazy, honestly, stories, like <laughs> stuff that I'm like, wow, I did not, I did not know that, or I would not have expected that for this healthcare company. And so it's really nice. People have been willing to participate. I was worried that, you know, I kind of put out this request and no one would be willing to chat about things. And, you know, I get it's like, you can't give away all your secret sauce, but I think high level, there are a lot of things we could be doing to provide more strategies, more knowledge, et cetera. And I hope that this series is a small part of that. That's awesome. Well, yeah. that's a great place to, to wrap. My guests today have been Nico and, and Nikita. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.